0: This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Getting older is something that happens to every single one of us. My guest, Dr. Laura Zettel-Watson, is studying just that. An associate professor in the Department of Psychology and a member of the Gerontology Program Council at Cal State Fullerton, the good doctor has dived into the field with the hope of better understanding the aging process and how we can do better with it
1: my grandpa was probably my favorite person in the whole world. And to see how this strong, tough, tattooed ex-Marine fell apart after losing my grandmother, how he just kind of became a shell of his former self and was not the grandpa that I remembered, that really, simultaneously with doing this job, kind of took a toll on me as well. And... I was like well how do we stop this from happening
0: i'm matt brown host of just a good conversation take a listen to our archives my guests have ranged from oscar winners gold medal olympic winners and chef and restaurant owner joseph mahon
1: when you get into a market where i'm at that's it's completely reversed and that's what i had to learn initially is that People are not
0: going to give you trust. What they want <laughs> is you have, to earn, you have to earn their trust through kind of a, a, a structure and a box that they see is fit for the price point and the menu offering. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Dr. Laura Zettle Watson. It's after two years so many days of research studying through covid i finally have the good doctor in front of me how are you dr laura
1: <laughs> i am doing well how are you
0: i'm great because like i we said before we hit the record button like i have been trying to get you on i think just as covid was a thing through covid and like we're at the back end of it and it's made my research even more interesting Finding out like what you do and what you've been studying—it's amazing how long two years goes by in either a flash or a drag, depending on what end you're on.
1: Right, I feel that both <laughs> of those things happened over the last two years. It was
0: yeah, it's depending how you look at it. It was like really slow, or it's like nothing really
1: happened. Right. Yeah. So at wh- work, it went very quickly, and at home with my two kids, it felt a bit slower than that. <laughs> Which is kind of like. The field in which
0: we're going to talk about, like, you either age really fast or it seems like it goes really slow. And so, you know, with researching of of the elderly and, and, and the field you're in, which is just unbelievable, I want to sit and talk to you real quick. Like, how does a young woman decide to get into the field in which you're in? Like, it's, it's not
1: normal. Yeah, no, I didn't start here. Very few gerontologists start in the field of gerontology. Um, I was a psychology major in college. Actually, I was first a Japanese major, but then moved to psychology. So, see, so you kind of make that transition. Well, <laughs> that's very that's easy. That's a different conversation. <laughs> um, and I was so fortunate in the year after I graduated, I hadn't thought about... You know, just like many psych majors don't, we didn't think about what happens next. So I have this degree, but with a bachelor's in psychology, you aren't ready to be a counselor yet. You can't do, you know, the things that somebody with a master's or a doctorate can do. So graduate school was on the horizon, but I didn't know my direction yet. Was that kind of frustrating? No, I think, I mean, I was, I was 21 and I just, you know, the whole world was ahead of me. I was not in a hurry. Okay. Um, My friends were still in school. So I was, at the time, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, wonderful, fabulous place to be, and I, didn't, I wasn't ready to leave yet. So I was so fortunate to get a job uh, with the Alcohol Research Center at U of M, and my job was a dream job. It was the first job <laughs> that I had out of college, and I was the research assistant responsible for the daily operations of this large-scale study between the Alcohol Research Center and the Transportation Research Institute. And they were interested in the effects of alcohol and sleep deprivation on people of various ages. So we had people between the ages of 30 and 90 go to a sleep center overnight and they got either four hours of sleep or eight hours of sleep. They came to me bright and early, 7:30 AM. So I did have to. You know, that was the hard part of the job was getting to work, to be ready. Um, And then I either gave them alcohol or a placebo and put them behind the wheel of a driving simulator. And it was a blast. I mean, just to be 21 years old, (laughs) you know, just old enough to start drinking myself and starting to do this research. It's a bartender's job. Sounds was kind of a bartender's, but I was getting paid as a research assistant and getting experience for graduate school. And it was absolutely amazing. And I was realizing that the people I had the most fun with or that I was looking the most forward to every morning were the older adults. The, you know, the people in their 80s and 90s who would come and have these incredible stories. And they were just, they were just so much fun. And I was truly engaged with the conversations we would have and their life stories, because, you know, we had to wait a half hour for the alcohol to kick in. So we would just chat. That was my job, was to just chat with the research participants.
0: Now, did you spend a lot of time with, like, your grandparents growing up?
1: I did. Um, They were not local, uh, but my dad's parents in particular, I was growing up in Michigan. They were in Arizona. But every summer I would spend with them, and we were very close. And just the year before, my grandmother had passed. And my grandpa was probably my favorite person in the whole world. Okay. Um, and to see how this strong, tough, tattooed ex-Marine fell apart after losing my grandmother, um, how he just kind of became a shell of his former self and was not the grandpa that I remembered. Um, that really simultaneously with doing this job kind of took a toll on me as well. And I was like, well, how do we stop this from happening? <laughs> um, most of the research at the time, um, and it's still true to this day, on widowhood is on women because generally women outlive their, their spouses right. in heterosexual relationships. And so there was very little information um, about how he can best cope and strategies for that. And so that's those two things kind of simultaneously, I realized I loved working with older people, not just with my grandparents. Um, and trying to get to the bottom or better understand what he was going through with this loss of his, you know, wife of 50 years. Right. Both of those things, I think, kind of clicked at the same time and made me say, okay, this is this is it. I want to look at sort of the health and well-being, or how do we help older adults age successfully? How do we get them? you know, through that period in the best way possible.
0: Right, because it's a field where, like, in the 40s and 50s, no, nobody thinks of that way. There's right. just, like, you get old, you send grandma and grandma off, you might see them in the summer like you did, but now it's a, it's an absolute business of taking care of the elderly and making sure they are getting there slower, right, if that kind of makes sense, to mm-hmm. not just be old, boom. Right. And, and it's an amazing, like, deep dive at what you've got into. It's, my dear friend, Mike Greenley always would say like, you're really good with old people when we would do like documentary films and stuff together. It's, do you think it was something that maybe because you were so well connected with your grandparents that that was like easier for you to slide into that position and understand how like their concerns and needs?
1: Potentially. I do absolutely see that with my students. Now, those that have close relationships with their grandparents have a level of comfort around older adults that are outside of their family because they've had that practice inside their family. So um, it is rare to find somebody without a personal connection to older adults come and say, I want to study gerontology. Right. Um, most of us get here because we were inspired by someone close to us, because we had those relationships. And we said, aging is not just this distant thing. It's happening to someone I love. Right. So... You know, how can I make that process better for them and how can I better understand it? I think that's a big problem is, you know, when we're young, especially for traditional college students who are 18 years old, you know, that's something that's just not them. That's far, far away. Grandparents, great grandparents. Right. Um, It's really to kind of, I feel like part of my job as as a professor of gerontology is to show students it's not that far away. One, we get there very quickly, like you yeah. said. Um, but also that this is happening now to somebody you care about. And this is, you know, something that all of us understanding is better personally for our individual families. But it's also better to understand from us, you know, social perspective from a community perspective our society is aging it's not just us as individuals right you know we're looking at it within the next decade nearly 20 percent of americans are going to be over 65
0: see that number's amazing
1: staggering so that was you know back at the turn of the last century you know when 1900 came along it was about four percent right so we've really just in a few generations very much seen this explosion of the older population and it now is not just an issue for those of us who are aging it's an issue for all of society uh in terms of what that means for our you know our economy for our politics for you know government and education and health care absolutely oh healthcare. so you know we worry about social security we're going to have lots of people drawing on it and fewer people paying in right that could be a potential issue so How do we continue to take care of older adults like they took care of the older adults before them? Mm -hmm. Um, They deserve it. They paid into these systems. How do we make sure that they can now be supported by them?
0: So how did your bartending research program go? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, So that was interesting. It it basically showed a synergistic effect or a multiplicative effect between uh, alcohol and sleep deprivation that really supported this idea of lowering the, you know, legal limits of alcohol or potentially having different limits for different age groups. Since then, many states have lowered limits not just for older adults, but entirely. So when we were doing this research, the majority of the country was at 0.1%. Um, now, most most states are at 0.08. Right. Um, some are even dropping down to 0.06 in terms of the blood alcohol content or legally allowed limits. So that's, that's
0: a glass of white wine.
1: Right. So that's the research showing that as we age, our bodies metabolize alcohol and other drugs much more slowly. Oh, so okay. So it takes right. the system longer.
0: So if grandma so, and grandpa yep. have a pop, they might get popped. <laughs>
1: <Exactly>. <laughs> you know? So, you know, one glass of wine in your 30s does not impact you the same way as it would in your 60s or in your 90s. Right. And sleep deprivation has similar effects. So when we were seeing older people with alcohol and sleep deprivation, we were starting to see impairment at much lower levels like .02, .03. So, did you feel
0: bad getting these f- people in their 90s 4 hours of sleep and then a bottle of tequila? I might
1: have, but they loved it. <laughs> it was it was not quite a bottle. But they they loved it. They were so excited to be contributing to the research. I think that was the other thing that, you know, just to see how they were engaged in doing something for the next generation.
0: I can only imagine you're sitting around, you're reading this ad in a newspaper and you're like, "Hmm." I get to sleep and then someone's going to give me a drink. Okay, let's sign up, Martha. You know, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Off you two go. <laughs> yeah, what an interesting it program. So, so then where'd you go from there? If that started to click for you and you think, I'm kind of liking this field.
1: Yeah, so at the time I was kind of starting to research clinical psychology, PhD programs, and I switched my focus from clinical psychology to health psychology and that's kind of the interplay with the mind-body relationship. Right. And I started looking at programs where I could study older adults specifically. So within health psychology, where could I also look at human development and specifically gerontology, um, which led me to my PhD program at UCI, uh, where they happened to have two sort of juxtaposed PhD programs at the time in health psychology and human development. And is that new?
0: That field new for them? The, the,
1: well, the field of psychology as a whole at the time, you know, at now it's much, much more prolific. But back then, this was in the, you know, mid-late 90s, there were only a couple dozen programs in the country. So it wasn't difficult to go through and find, I think I, you know, applied to the eight places where it existed. Right. <laughs> so where there was somebody doing health psychology and aging. Wow. So.
0: That, just just alone, how young the field is mm-hmm. i mean that's not that long ago
1: Yeah.
0: i mean so i mean is it safe to say you're still like the field is so cutting edge and still learning it's not like solidified like this is the rules like it's still a growth in progress
1: absolutely i think psychology is that still it's still as far as sciences go one of the babies um but gerontology as well i mean the phrase hasn't even been around for more than 100 years. And researchers weren't calling themselves that until very recently. Uh, most of the programs in the country are younger than 20 or 30 years old. So the field as a whole is, I think, still in its infancy.
0: There the, was a lot of debate on aging just 100 years ago. Right. Like, when I was reading, I mean, it was back black and white, ugly, like, no, this is better, this is better, or we just don't care. Right.
1: Well, I think back then... We didn't see a lot of it. People would, you know, go through their lives, they'd work really hard, and then sometime in mid to late life, they would catch a chronic condition, whether it be pneumonia, flu, tuberculosis, right. <laughs> dysentery. Yeah, the health comes in and it. die quickly. So we were dying of chronic conditions, and very few people were making it into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, now, those are
0: so curable. Now, exactly. Right? Yeah. We've
1: got penicillin, we've got antibiotics, we've got all of these things that, you know, tuberculosis is very rare, and it's treatable now. So we don't have, you know, large swaths of our older population dying from those things. Um, Now, chronic conditions are what eventually take us out. And those, as we know, by by their very definition, they progress over time, get worse over time. And we are now seeing people getting sick in midlife and staying in those conditions almost indefinitely because we have medical technology and pharmaceuticals to keep us going until something else gives out. Right.
0: It's sort of like we kind of took care of the tortoise, like yes. those real quick ones, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's still, That's a great you analogy. know, he's still coming along. Right. Yeah. It's always going to be there.
1: Right. And so with the kind of advent of the chronic condition now, that's where health psychology comes in. Because now it's not just a quick deal with this medical or physical illness. There are all of the mental and psychological and emotional components that come along with it. So when you can no longer function as you used to because of this chronic condition, when your life somehow fundamentally changes because of this condition that requires, you know, some sort of cognitive level of coping or right. there's, there's more coming into it than just medical treatment.
0: It always was thought of when you would look at the elderly, like the, Oh, they're going to get old and weak. And it was physical. But when doing the research, it, there's so much more mental that has not thought of. And now it is like, I never thought of my, one of my grandparents were in their seventies to worry about their physical makeup or their mental makeup. It was like, oh, grandma needs a nap. But you don't think of now, it's like in the network we were talking about, all those things, it's so much more worried about their
1: head. Well, and I think most of us would say that too, that to what makes us truly who we are is what's inside our minds, not our physical bodies necessarily. So with the exception of you know, high-level elite athletes who have their – physical self as their identity, right. most of us could say, you know, even if I found myself unable to function in one way or another physically, as long as I have my mental capacities, then I'm still me. Um, and if you ask the majority of people what they fear most about aging, it's not the loss of their hearing or the inability to walk or ending up using a wheelchair. It's Alzheimer's. It's dementia, right? Those are the things that people fear more. Um, One thing that we as gerontologists have really tried to stress, though, in the last, you you know, decade or so is this focus on positive aging and recognizing that aging is not all about loss of faculties. So, yes, there are physical declines that we can't argue. We absolutely see that. And there are places where we see some cognitive declines, but there are places where people might get cognitively sharper. There are places where people may find better coping skills than they had when they were younger, um, personality tweaks, you know, things that actually make us better in many ways um, in terms of maturation and those types of things. So not every element of aging has to be negative. right? Um, and I think the other thing, too, is we've really moved away from uh, using phrases like frail. Um, Or elderly because, well, for us in the field, that is a specific category. The frail elderly Mm -hmm. is very different than, you know, our parents who are in their 70s and still going strong. You know, my mother is like the Energizer bunny. That woman is still out (laughs) mowing lawn, planting flowers, painting things. She'll climb up on ladders to fix blinds. I mean, she's amazing. Um, And that is not at all what... You know, we think of when we think of elderly.
0: Yeah, no. And uh, 80 she would years never ago, call herself elderly. Right. I wouldn't
1: call her elderly. Right.
0: Eighty years ago, that they would have freaked if she was on a ladder.
1: Right. Right. And now <laughs> she's, down. you know, she said no, this keeps me young. Being right. able to do these things keeps her young. It keeps her sharp. So.
0: So okay. So let's talk about like the physical side. One oh one. What's the best thing that then people as they're aging can do?
1: I'm gonna probably sound like a broken record from everyone's physician, but healthy diet and exercise. Okay, but <laughs> lower but, our stress level. I mean, it's all those things. It's not a surprise,
0: it, right? It's that simple. It's that simple. And you and I could take a walk around right. and go, "Why aren't they doing
1: it?" Right. And I think it's one of those things that you can't just wake up and say, "Oh, it's time to get healthy. Let's do it today." It's something that we have to start early, and when you are young and healthy, you're not thinking about getting older and losing function. So you're just like, I'll deal with that when that problem comes. Well, when the problem comes, <laughs> now you've got a lot to overcome. Mm-hmm. So it's it's truly starting young, educating our youth, you right. know, adolescents, college students, just keep educating people. Right. Staying in our best health is what will keep us healthy in later life. Right.
0: I've had a chance to photograph the senior Olympics. And you're looking at these people going, there's no way you're 70, 80, 90, because that's all they've been doing. And they look fabulous. You'll see these 90-year-old women, you're like, you're still out on the track running.
1: But it's unlikely she started that at 80. Right, she's been doing (laughs) it. She has probably been doing that. But because she's been
0: doing it for 70 years... She's still going. Exactly. There's no way she picked it up at 68, like, I'm going to go hit the track right, and do a quarter mile.
1: Yep. And the things that we did when we were younger, you know, say that you run for a half hour a day, that keeps you in shape till probably 30, 35, then we start to notice we need to do a little bit more to stay in that same shape. Mm-hmm. And with each passing decade, in just to stay at that original level, you've got to up your game right. in terms of exercise and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, I so. saw...
0: A man after 40 loses 2 or 3% of his muscle mass a year. Like, real quick, all of a sudden, you can be that frail, thin, like, where did my legs go? I don't have a butt anymore guy. And that's the funny thing. It just happens.
1: And we're also seeing really big jumps in things like osteoporosis among um, not just women anymore, but men as well. It used to kind of be staved off because people were physically active all the time. But as we, you know, with the advent of computers and the majority of our jobs now being desk jobs, right, um, more and more people in industrialized countries and developed nations are seeing these conditions that didn't exist very much in the past because we have such sedentary lifestyles.
0: That, that's so funny you say that there's a photo of the great hockey player, Bobby Orr, who was because hockey players didn't make a lot of money back when he played, had a farm. So it shows him swinging an ax. And I showed my wife a couple months ago, and I'm like, how old do you think he is here? And she's like, oh, I don't know, 28, 29. I'm like, he's 55. He has (laughs) retired already, but he looks like a guy who should never have to wear a shirt. Like, he looks (laughs) unbelievable. He's just absolutely ripped and torn. But it's because the guys did stuff back then. They had to physical labor, being on a farm. Like you, you were going at it all the time. You put a computer in front of somebody. Different story. Yeah, totally different story. You're not getting your ten thousand steps in a day behind a desk.
1: Well, and we've probably all seen the headlines at this point um, over the last several years, where it's you know sitting is the new smoking, or right, right, just being sedentary is part of the problem. Yeah, that's a slippery slope.
0: Uh, there was a wrestler when we had wrestling here at Cal State Fullerton, um, Big John, and he used to help out with the program, and uh, all the uh, participants, right, would love him because he would pick him up, and here's Big John, and the older ladies loved him because he was, like, sweet and stuff. That program, is that, is it is expanding here at Cal State Fullerton? Is it getting better, bigger and better for the students with the program?
1: Oh, so, at Ollie. Ali is incredible. I'll put in a plug. Ali is the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. And uh, at Cal State Fullerton, we have one of the largest affiliated chapters in the country. So it is not part of Cal State Fullerton, but it is affiliated with the university. So they are their own entity, and they are a phenomenal organization for people over 50 who want to get involved, come back for education, do those kinds of things. Um, and the OLLI program, at last I had heard, was over seventeen hundred members just at Cal State Fullerton.
0: Now, do you guys tap into them at all? And we and absolutely like, do like, collaborate. I don't want to say them. like guinea pig study rabbits, but you use them as you they, know. they
1: are affiliated with our university in so many different ways. We, they do volunteer so actively for research participation. They are some of our very best participants. Um, and they also will do everything from tutoring students one-on-one. Many of them are former educators, they're engineers, they're physicians, they're, right. they're highly educated folks who um, are happy to give back their time to our students. Uh, they sit on panels, and they will let students ask them anything about their their lives growing up, what it's like now to, you know, be in the bodies that they're in, right. and They've just been an incredible asset for us here at Cal State Fullerton.
0: Because it would seem like for you guys, it would be really great that you have that pool of, you know, people to work with. Absolutely.
1: Although we have to be cautious to not rely completely on them because they are so, for lack of a better term, kind of elitely aging. I mean, they are they are kind of just
0: the cream of the crop, the
1: cream of the crop. They are, they know what they're doing, right. What we should all be, how we all (laughs) should hope to age. So
0: are you kind of looking then for the pool of the average, which is horrible to say, but
1: just, right. I mean, well, when you want to be able to make claims about how variables are related in a research study, you want to be able to generalize that back to the bigger population. And if you use kind of a, a special group, you can't generalize beyond that group. So if i use just ally participants then i can say well among this you know sort of upper upper middle class highly educated group of folks this happens right well what happens in people who are not so well off the regular the <laughs> folk, regular yeah. folk um so we do recruit from them as well as from around our local community right
0: what's okay 101 mental What's a good mental starting point to get as you're aging yourself kind of prepared or, I guess, in the right direction?
1: So the mental piece has a handful of components to it. One of the big places where research is happening now is in the cognitive aspects of well,
0: that's a big our, word right now. Everybody's yes, using that
1: and neuroscience. mean right. that's the the new trend is trying to, you know, cognitive neuroscience is is where it's at right now in terms of trying to figure out the way that our brain and its makeup um, from an aging perspective, how not only how it continues to work kind of mechanically, but also how that translates into our everyday functioning. Um, So there's so much research going on right now. um, And I don't claim to be a cognitive neuroscientist by right. any stretch of the imagination. That's another degree. Um, that's, a, that's somebody else. <laughs> Those are experts in their own right who are doing. But is that the biggest field growing work. right now? I would say in the field of gerontology, that's probably where you know the the gerontology the new, growth is. That's where the new growth is.
0: Yes, because right. like you said, like the physical side is duh. Eat yeah. right. Take care of yourself. Right. I mean, that's that's not yes. shocking.
1: So the hope right now, or where you know people are first trying to understand the extent of decline, is it specific to certain areas? Um, we're we keep trying to get a better handle on things like dementia, Alzheimer's being the most common type of dementia. So that's um, the
0: scary one, right? That's Alzheimer's
1: like- disease is is terrifying, and it's all the dementia, you know, types can be terrifying, but. Alzheimer's is rampant. It's affecting, I mean, at this point in America, one in three adults know somebody close to them with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it is rampant. Um, It's one of the biggest public health challenges of our time. So really kind of understanding that better, trying to figure out exactly where it's coming from, is the way we get to a cure or an effective treatment. Um, So that's where the neuroscience piece is really coming into play right now. Um, but you also have cognitive researchers who um, will swear by the value of, you know, use it or lose it as far as your brain faculties go. Right. So keep exercising that brain, whether that is the Sudoku puzzles or crossword, or those tend to keep us sh- sharper, at least in short-term studies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, it's arguable about long-term effects, so you can't just do crossword puzzles for a week and hope to see benefits two years from now. Right. But if you're doing crossword puzzles every day this week, we do see a little bit of a. It can't hurt, right? That day. Yeah. Right. If you can
0: figure out what five across is and keep you sharp. Mm -hmm. It also kind of seems like my aunt does crossword puzzles. Like she does New York Times crossword puzzle like every day, religiously, with a pen. God love her. (laughs) Uh, You would think that also keeps you like sharp with like their pop questions. Like she would know who Kanye West is, where. I guarantee you, when my grandmother was alive, she wouldn't have known those kind of questions. So it kind of keeps you fresh and up to date. And and connected
1: and engaged. And
0: Yeah, up and your mind's constantly firing off and you're not just thinking it was Frank Sinatra and there was nothing after that. Right,
1: And those are clear connections. We've established clear connections between that type of mental cognition between kind of our mental well-being. So if you look at that from the perspective of depression and anxiety and loneliness and those types of things, um, folks that engage with life, whether it be the crossword puzzle or, you know, going for a run and exercising, getting to be in social environments with other people, they tend to be in better shape all around, better physical shape, better mental health, better cognitive performance. So there are correlations between all of these variables that basically suggests our best way forward is to make sure we're paying attention to every area because exercising and getting aerobic activity is good for our brain right mm-hmm. it gets exercise right. uh, i'm sorry oxygen to our brain then that's going to make us feel better about ourselves and that you know sense of self esteem is going to play into our you know confidence in going out socially and that's going to play into our cognitive Performance And it's it's all so tightly intertwined, which makes it both frustrating as a researcher, but also exciting, because it's impossible to peel apart and say one thing is responsible. But at the same time, it gives us so many opportunities to um, intervene and sort of say, okay, if this piece over here is slipping, let's concentrate on something else over here that isn't.
0: Is that the frustrating part in gerontology, like to know that it's not just one? There's lots of little pieces that can
1: yes because it's like a jenga game right, right if yeah. you if one thing falls apart the whole thing could come tumbling down but at the same time you can kind of buffer one area with strength in another okay so we see that kind of compensation taking place very successfully wow
0: okay so the social changes how is that like a huge part of the study because like loneliness is m- a massive problem yep. right and and um, like you said earlier, the widow situation, mm-hmm. especially if it's, and I remember uh, listening to you talk about this if it's the one that, like, if it's the wife who keeps everybody bonded, makes the schedule, keeps everybody going, we're going to go out Tuesday with the Smiths. Right. If she were to pass and he stays in and just watches college football all day long, he's not now getting out, he's not socializing. Like, how is that? Something in the research in the last twenty years that you've been with seeing that change.
1: Yeah, that is just such. Let's see if we can unpack that. That I is know, my baby. That social area is where I kind of came up in the field of gerontology. Was looking at the impact that those social well, relationships. I'll sit back have. and you
0: just go for the next hour
1: because <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's, most. There's it's, so many pieces. Right.
0: It's it's the most interesting part because I watched the dynamic with my grandparents and when my grandmother went first, she passed away. Mm-hmm. I can see for that last nine months of my grandfather's life of the struggle. He, and they were in a uh, a retirement community and still it was difficult for yep. him. Right. I th- and he was the oldest of all of his friends. So he was like the last guy of of the tight group. And that really, he would sit there and just go, oh, I'm the last one. Like he wouldn't think like to find more. He always right. looked at himself as, the last remaining hero. right?
1: Kind of just waiting. Right. Like he's in a waiting room. And yeah. it was
0: nine months on the clock.
1: Right. I think, you know, from a social perspective, the reason I love studying social support and social relationships in later life in particular is because I always see it as a place that there, no matter how old we get, no matter how frail we might get, we can still have social relationships. So they are... One of those variables that you can keep tweaking and you can keep putting energy into, um, and hopefully for for everyone that energy is rewarded. Um, things that we've seen in terms of the changes since I've been in the field, um, when I first started looking at aging and relationships and loss, you know, we were really looking at kind of the previous generation of older adults those were the people that married young stayed married to the same person until one died and the relationship ended with the loss of one of the spouses and that was it they were unlikely to remarry they just they had that one love Mm -hmm. that spanned 50 or 60 years right um and so when i kind of the research I, quote unquote, grew up on, was that generation. So when we looked at widowhood, when we looked at loss, it was looking at it in the context of losing sort of that one great love, that one person who was your constant throughout the majority of your adult life. Um, Things have changed now as we are looking at baby boomers aging into this new group of widows and widowers. Uh, the baby boomer generation, are those of born post-World War II, between 1946 and 1964. So they started hitting 65 about a decade ago. Right. And they are the largest cohort or generation of folks we've ever seen on this planet. And they are aging. Um, and this is why we're going to see that number jump to about 20% of Americans are going to be over 65, because those you know, that will happen when the last of the baby boomers hit 65, As and a, the older ones are still alive. Right.
0: As a group, are they aging well?
1: Mm, it depends on how you define well.
0: Like, with, so with in terms th-
1: of chronic conditions, and uh, no, they're worse off than their parents. Uh, oh. um, but in terms of other resources and things like that, potentially, yes. So I think it depends on what, how we define well. Uh, but definitely they have more chronic conditions and, you know, why gerontology
0: is split up into it's so, so, many, there's like, so many, pieces? so many pieces. But it's
1: almost like you have to go back and restudy all the things with this new generation, because now the baby boomers had, what, an almost 50% divorce rate. So...
0: Yeah, nothing like their parents. Half of that. Right? No,
1: they're, right. Their parents were with the same person. Divorce was under 10%. They aged with that person. Few remarried. But with baby boomers, you're seeing people entering later life who are on second or third marriages. You're seeing people with mixed families Um, stepchildren, half siblings, you know, step parents, those kinds of things you're seeing different, that beanpole kind of family is, is no longer that the nuclear beanpole family is now just in all sorts of directions. The traditional family no longer exists as it did Mm -hmm. in Norman Walkwell paintings. So we are now dealing with a generation that from a social perspective, in some ways, might be better off because they weren't reliant on just that one constant person um, but in other ways, you know it really depends on how they got there. Was it amicable splits and peaceful right. losses, or is there grief and anger wrapped up in in that aging piece? <laughs> so i mean it's a it's a whole new animal I think is studying. The social relationships in this generation, and I think it will be even again a new animal when we get to the current generation of young adults. They are. It's it's been forecasted that that they are less likely to marry. That maybe only three quarters of them will ever marry.
0: Are we talking like the millennials now, or is it X? I've I can't even keep track of what generation I mean. Probably
1: even. X is X might look more like the baby boomers. Okay. The millennials may be more of this target. So the younger generation X and the older millennials is probably who I'm talking about. Um, They are way less likely to marry. They're way less likely to have children. Right. Um, They are way more likely to have friends as family, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So to have Mm -hmm. friends that become family. And that is going to change the social relationships in later life again and what we understand and know about that. Because Literally, your
0: field's going to change in 20 years. It keeps years. changing.
1: Right. <laughs> so like, I can't stop.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're going to just be like, okay, I'm, st- I'm a freshman again. I'm starting all over. exactly Because there's no like, oh, well, I'm just following the blueprint. Right. Because it gets shaken up like a you know, a set of sand, and here you go again. And
1: here we go again. And so we build it all over again and try to understand it. And just by the time we start to understand it, the next generation comes around, knocks it down, and we have to build it back up, our understanding, because – it, every generation, the demographic shifts, the political shifts, the, all of those pieces change that generation and change what they look for in their, their social relationships.
0: Right. In that social field with social media, how is that like lightning struck the, the gerontology community? Because like now, I remember showing my grandparents when I got an iPod. And telling them, like, I have 10,000 songs in here. And my grandmother just going, but where are the records? Right. Like, how, how can Frank Sinatra be in the iPod? Right. But, but now, in this generation, like, like my mom, she's got AirPods it, and She's running around. She's telling Alexa to turn lights off. And how has that changed? <laughs> you know, right? like, it's so weird. Like, my, my mom's, like, all connected and telling yep. things. And, and so how has that in, in, in the field been a change?
1: It's been massive. It's been. And did you see it coming? Flipped. (laughs) I mean, I think we saw it coming as we were bowled over by the wave, right? (laughs) Like after the three seconds before everyone else, maybe monsoon. Uh, It was massive, and it it turned the whole field on its side because it just flipped us over. It. Did you guys all
0: get together in a seminar and go, "Wow"?
1: No, I mean it. It absolutely did. Kind of earn itself some keynote addresses. I'm sure saying what is happening here. Um, some of the biggest things that we see, um, from a technology perspective, I mean, it's, it's affecting us in so many ways, right? There's the technology that helps us stay at home longer. That's been massive. So kind of the actual, the traditional technological sense of technology, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's a thing, it's hardware or software that improves our life in some way. Alexa is a great example. Um, if I am a fall risk in my home, Having technology. I mean, there are literal now bath mats or rugs that can go next to your bed that if you don't step on it by a certain time in the morning, your, you know, caregiver or your child across the country can get a text that says or, or a text you when mom does step out of bed. Right and it's you know if so if you see that that hasn't happened you can have someone local go check on them i mean it's the technology is incredible and that is affordable for the average person the watch the watches are amazing right
0: i, I the reason my mom's got an eye watch right. is if she falls i know yep like it's it's silly but
1: that it's, is exactly the kind of technology that you know, and it started years ago. I think you know when we, were with the help, I fallen and I can't get up emergency right, button, that right, beautiful the emergency that alert. we used
0: to watch on TV. Right, kids what remember those that famous commercial. There was a television commercial,
1: <laughs> and I think that now is everywhere. It is absolutely possible for somebody to be home and still be safe um, if they've got the right technology. And becoming more affordable.
0: Right, because that used to be a very frightening thing. You fall, hit your head, break your hip. Chances are- And that could
1: be the end. That could be
0: the end. Or it became the slippery slope, Uh, right? Because then blood flow, you're not moving as well, and there was like a clock of like, oh, if you broke your hip, within a year that person could- And we
1: do still see that happening. Sure. So not getting, you know, having unattended folks who take bad spills, I mean, that can be the number one- Aside from dementia, probably the number one reason for admission to a nursing facility, right? Head trauma, and, and then broken... a lot of people are not leaving once they have a lower extremity injury, right? Because they are now not able to do what they need to do back at home, and to that take care circles of themselves. back
0: to the physical thing: staying yes. strong,
1: right? Taking care of that osteoporosis before it turns into a broken femur, right? Absolutely. So that's an exercise, and you know, proper diet help, you know, keep us strong. So. I think the technology clearly has come in in that sense. But then there's the other type of technology you're talking about, which is sort of the the internet and the social networking, right? The, oh, Just yeah. the all of that existing now. Co- being connected. That has absolutely changed how people of all generations interact, um, but has affected the aging generation as well. So people now, instead of... You know, needing to write letters to stay in touch, can go on someone's Facebook page and just sort of watch what's going on, follow someone on Instagram. FaceTiming. You know, FaceTiming. I mean, my Thick. kids don't live near their grandparents, and they grew up, quote-unquote, knowing them, because we would FaceTime regularly. Right. And so when they saw them in person, it, they didn't skip a beat. They didn't have to get used to this person they hadn't right. seen. Oh, I haven't seen grandma. This was somebody nine they've months. seen every week on FaceTime.
0: Right. So and she doesn't give you that.
1: You Last time I saw you, you were right. this high. Because she <laughs> saw you last Tuesday. And I think that that has been beneficial in many, many ways. The flip side, though, is the research suggests yes, that. FaceTime and, you know, all of this connectivity does help connect us. But from a psychological perspective, it doesn't necessarily give us the same boost that we would get from in-person interactions. You can't get a hug over FaceTime. You can't have personal contact. You can't have those same exchanges. It's, It's not... It's, it's not the same. It's
0: not 100%. It's more like 25%, but it's better than zero. Yep. Like I in think the so study. we would call that, that yeah.
1: in the official term, we would call that kind of like partial compensation.
0: Right. Right.
1: <laughs> so it, it gets there some of the way, and it's definitely better than nothing, uh, but it is still not as good as. As
0: getting together yep. for dinner exactly. and sitting around and, right, talking. Right. I mean, so where where is the where do you see those changes for them moving forward? Is there like with driverless cars, like get in, that's like a huge thing. Like for, I don't think it's going to be ready yet in the next couple of years, but let's say the generation that's now 55, 60, they could have a car in 10 years that drives them to Palm Springs so they can go see their friends. Yep.
1: And I think that though, that kind of technology is exactly the kind of thing that, helps people do what we call age in place longer. It allows people to function independently without needing someone else to care for them. Right. And, you know, we kind of in our field talk about things like activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living. It's the things that you need to be able to do to live independently. And driving or getting yourself to the places you need to be is one of those things. Being able to, you know, clean up your dishes and do your laundry, take your medication properly, all of those types of things, get in and out of bed. Right. Um. Bathe. All of those are things that allow us to stay independent. And as we lose our ability to do those things, that's when we start seeing the need for a live-in caregiver or assisted living, those types of issues. People want to avoid that as long as possible. They want to live in their place for Some as long of them as are, they can.
0: Right. Some of them are kind of a slippery slope with yeah, like- Getting Grubhub so I don't make a dinner, I just order. Or I can order my groceries instead of going to the grocery store.
1: And So we're halfway there on many of these things, but what it's allowed for these folks to do is stay where they want to be. If they can afford these resources, if they can, you know, dine in every night by having Grubhub deliver, if that allows them to check the box of, yep, I'm feeding myself, then... They can stay at home longer. Is
0: there a negative side, though? Not making your dinner, which means you don't have to do your dishes or you don't go to the grocery store and physically walk around and keep track of what I've purchased. Is there a negative side to that?
1: I mean, I think, you know, nutritionists and dietitians would say – the, the caloric intake, and you don't know right. what's going in your food. Um, you're probably getting way more sodium than you need to be getting, or too much butter, or the kinds of things that make oh, takeout taste good. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, not take away that's the why butter. It tastes better than what I make at home. Um, and so you need to absolutely be aware of the types of things you're eating. I mean, if you're having unhealthy food delivered every night, then absolutely you're having a problem. Um, that's going to get you someplace else down the road. Right. Um, but I think all of these things can be beneficial if 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 my goal in life is to stay in my home where I am happy and I am comfortable then psychologically speaking it may be okay for me to make some concessions and these other things and say okay I'll never socialize in the grocery store again and I'm going to eat a little bit more sodium and I'm going to but if that's what's allowing me to be happy and allowing me to feel like I am having a high quality of life, then as a gerontologist, I might not say this to my you know nutritionist friends, <laughs> but as a gerontologist, I want to be able to say, then then do that. Right. Then you need to do what is making you.
0: Right. It's yeah. funny in your field where you, you try not to step <laughs> on the toes of your <laughs> other counterparts who are like, no, you should be growing your vegetables in the garden. But right. you're also saying, but right. let, let grandma get Put some grub Yeah, Put glass hug. of wine. Sure, yeah. 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 Uh,
1: because it's... The psychological piece is a huge piece of it. It's not the only piece, and we won't have a need for psychological if our physical self doesn't let us get that far, <laughs> you know, right. if we if we die sooner than that because of our health. Um, but I think all of these pieces go together. And that's, I think, why I love the field of gerontology so much is by its very definition, it's interdisciplinary. So, so many different players play into the success of this field. Right. So I'm coming at it from a psychology perspective, but I'm working with – sociologists and public health folks and nurses and kinesiologists and biologists and neuroscientists and just, you know, everybody comes together to sort of say aging is all of these things. That's
0: one hell of a party.
1: It is. We're pretty fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's break it down uh, with grandma and grandpa. Ladies first. Like what, what, what are you guys studying and seeing with, with women as they're aging like the benefits and like, I hate to say not so much of a benefit as you're getting older. What are you seeing there that could help them?
1: I think things in the field that have changed since I've started that I am excited about are, there are a couple of things. One is portrayal in the media. I think there has been a double standard for far too long where men aging get to be dignified and, You know, just have all of this power and they're sort of displayed as an ideal. Whereas right. women aging, it's like, nope, <laughs> you're, you've passed your expiration date, you're out. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like there have been so many um, ad campaigns, television shows, movies in the last decade or two that have really tried to change that narrative and show us women of all different ages, as well as shapes and sizes and colors and and to really just kind of take back the narrative that a woman needs to be a certain age or a certain look or a certain, you know, and a lot of campaigns have really embraced that. And that makes me excited to see what continues coming. Um, We're seeing more leading roles for, you know, female actors in Hollywood, right? Where they, and it's not just as, you know, the crazy old grandma, right? It's a legitimate role. So, that part is really exciting to me.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen the documentary uh, September? It's about the September issue of Vogue.
1: I have not. It's I need to see it's
0: that. very interesting because obviously Vogue magazine is very obviously pushed towards women. And they had, I'm blanking on her name. She was in one of the Marvel movies, whatever. She's a, a, a very attractive blonde. And they photograph her to be on the cover. And these photo editors sit around and the publishers, and they're like, we don't like her earlobe. We don't like this. Now she's 25, 26, and they're openly talking, and I've been in those rooms. Uh Oh, her eye here is a little less than this and that. And then they Photoshop all these other little pieces of her and make literally a super version of her, like seven or eight parts merged together. They put that on the cover. But on nowhere on the cover is there any description saying... Or
1: disclaimer. Right. Saying... <laughs> this is not a real person. This,
0: this is not this person. Like, she doesn't look like this. So for you young girls or women, anybody that's trying to look at this and go, oh, that's what she looks like. No. That's what Photoshop made her look like.
1: Right. And I, I know that there is a, you know, contingent of psychologists and public health professionals trying to get disclaimers on right. pictures for exactly that reason.
0: Right. I, I, for uh, for a person who's made a living photographing, it's great when I when I photograph my athletes when they were here at Cal State Fullerton, and they'll be, I don't know, 20 years old, a track girl, and she'll be like, oh, uh, take my good side. And I'm like, sweetheart, you're 20, you don't have a bad side. <laughs> like, you right. come back to me, you know, when you're 60, and you say, find my good side. We'll talk, but you're 20, you're, 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 you're great. You're you're not going to get any better. Like you're an elite athlete. Like it's funny how they start to already women put those kind of bubbles in their head of like, I've got to be this, I got to be that. And then I do think it wears on them as they get older.
1: Absolutely. They're constantly bombarded with that message that aging is a negative thing. I mean, look at our beauty product industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's – the message is constantly, you know, how to keep yourself looking young. Right. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. So I think as we move into these the, – the next decade or so, I'm hopeful that the message will become louder and clearer that you don't have a bad side right, for every it, everyone of every age. Right, because –
0: In your field, you would rather have them young in the head and young as in physical shape than sitting there saying, oh, I don't have any crow's feet.
1: Sure. And I think a lot of um, the most kind of, when I I say powerful, powerful to me, older women that I look at are the ones that kind of embrace the aging and say, you know, these laugh lines, these crow's feet, this shows how much I smiled in my life. I had a good life. Look at this. And, you know, they point to their crow's feet. That, to me, is so incredible and so beautiful because it says this is a person who had all of those experiences and and made it this far and got to, you know, and and hopefully they're still here to tell us about it. Right. So that's the I think the the real beauty in aging is is being there and being able to still share your experiences regardless of what it looks like on the outside. And and that so that message I see starting to crack through the surface, and I'm, I'm seeing that in places, another place with uh, some of the gender differences with women uh, in particular is we're now seeing women on their own and doing fine. Um, there's no longer this narrative that a man is needed. And so even for older women, which was sort of something that they grew up hearing,
0: Right. Right. Um,
1: there are women now well, there is a stigma. supporting themselves. Right. And, and a lot of them after widowhood, after divorce are able to say, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm me. I now I can do what I want. It's all about me now. And they kind of, they own it they take it back and they, you know, just thrive. Um, that part's really exciting, too, is that I think we're in a time in our society where women are going to be able to just be themselves and not need somebody else to be complete. Um, and I'm hoping that that is also another narrative that we that we will see change with this right. generation.
0: What's the advantages that Grandpa has today that's better off for him aging than Grandpa 50 years ago didn't have?
1: Yeah, I think one of the big problems... Um, was for widowers in particular. So men who lose their wives, which is less common, right? Most uh, women tend to outlive their husbands. Right. So, um, so in the past, one of the biggest complaints or problems that we saw with older widowers was that their wife had been what we call the kinkeeper, the person that connected them to their children, their grandchildren, their friends. And so with her loss, he may feel kind of lost and not connected. Um, that she was the bridge to the grandkids or the kids. Um, One thing I see changing now is with more women in the workforce, with more – I I saw a statistic in some large cities at the beginning of COVID when people had to stay home with kids. 25% of the people staying home were dads. Um, And in the past, that never would have happened. So those relationships, I think, are with those children – are now important to dads, too. Dads are being told, it's okay to have a relationship with your kids. It's okay to be a hands-on dad. That doesn't have to be the mom's job. Mm-hmm. You can take a role in engaging with your kids on a daily basis and not just supporting them financially, but truly being there. And I think that sets the stage for lifelong relationships that don't need that other parent as the kinkeeper. Right. That those dads are someday... To be able to jump right in and have a relationship even in the absence of the mom right um, and all of these I think it, as I'm as I'm saying things like dad and mom and husband and wife it makes me think that we've kind of gone very you know heteronormative um, and I think it's important to also note that we did not have data forever on other types of couples. Oh, you had uh, none. I'm, I'm nobody. Right? Um, and that was probably unheard of when you started. Right. And I think, in fact, we even had a question in one of our surveys um, that we were sort of like, well, is this kind of getting at that? And they're like, yeah, but we can't ask that directly. People won't answer That's it. It's a gay question. Right. And <laughs> And I think now... That's changing where we're going to start having data. So that's a brand new field as well over the last 20 years or so. There's another hour. And <laughs> it's it, it's, still, that's it's an entire. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. And so that's really exciting that we are are finally starting to get information on people that may have been closeted couples for 70 years. Um, or information on folks who lost somebody but couldn't grieve openly. Okay,
0: so there's an interesting then like cross dynamic. If you have like an elderly lesbian couple, like ha- is there even even enough data to kind of figure out how that would work? If you know you were saying like one keeps a connection or having two, right. like or or two gay men. Like, is there, and even enough data to even have a conversation?
1: No, we're starting to get that data. So that's the good news, is that the current generation of researchers recognizes that there is a complete lack of knowledge and is starting to be more inclusive and get that, to get that data. Um, So for the first time ever, we're now starting to see Right, because um, that's a
0: what you you talk about opening up a book unheard. Yep. Like you could talk about then. They they could have been elderly couples now. Let's say two guys. They might not have children, so their dynamic on how much money they have, what they're where they're living, that could be different. They could have adopted. I mean, they could have one could have had or not. Like it's so different to well, even go we, there in that. We research. know that
1: the discrimination that's existed for years. Has hurt um, our LGBTQ plus community harder than anyone else because say that this couple's been together for fifty years, but they can't be each other's beneficiaries on their life insurance. They can't be. They can't even be the decision maker in some states for end of life decision making. So,
0: and that's still in place, right?
1: Those are thankfully rare, Um, but but it is up until a decade ago you couldn't. In yes. Right. There are places That's where, crazy. And how would you if you had this lifelong partner who would be the person you want making your decisions and yet your estranged brother is the person they bring in right. to decide whether. Yeah. You, know, you haven't so talked to in forever. Exactly. And I think that that is completely unfair and disrespectful and and disgusting. And so we are now moving into a place where the research can help inform those policies and say these are strong, meaningful relationships where folks have been together for a long time and yet you're saying if if I lose my husband, it's okay for me to publicly grieve and like my workplace even says, Okay, you have grief time. Mm-hmm. But if I lose my female partner
0: Who still could be your wife, like married legally, potentially, yes. Right.
1: But maybe I haven't come out. Maybe people oh, aren't aware. Right, right. So now I'm grieving privately. But that grief is no different. I've still lost that partner, that love of my life. It's
0: more of a difficult grief too, and because you can't difficult be public. Because I
1: can't get support for that grief. So I think that's, uh, like you said, it's a, it's another,
0: another show. Jared, is <laughs> like a like a library constantly expanding. Like, yeah. and it's not just a bookshelf; it's like a row. Yep, that's literally a whole nother row. So, for something like that, are you talking? You'll need maybe 10, 15 years of data before you can kind of get something wrapped around like with the gay community? Yeah, Whether that's a it's- great
1: question. I think you can do a lot of things quickly to kind of get a survey of what's, what the lay of the land is. Right. And that can happen pretty quickly and that is happening. In order to do what, what we call longitudinal research where you follow folks over yes. decades, that is starting, but that's going to take us a couple of decades to, to see where it goes. Right. So we can get some of the early stuff and start to certainly get an idea. And people have been doing that for, you know, in, in this millennium. <laughs> We've right. started that research. But there was very little existing before that.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, that, it's kind of like that what we talked about before we hit the button, the, the, the networking and when who you would want to. And the woman in Stanford did a research on mm-hmm. gay men dying with AIDS and who they would. Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic that's not thought of or wasn't thought of even in the 90s when you were coming up and now it's something like, Hey, you know, we should get, get our hands on this and kind of figure out what that's about. Right.
1: Yeah. One Boy, fascinating field story. Um, I don't think it's been published yet, but I had, I saw it at a conference. Um, somebody was looking at older men who survived HIV and AIDS in the eighties and nineties, but lost a lot of close friends or partners um, and had not necessarily come out at any point or came out recently And kind of looking at the way that they grieve as opposed to others in their same age group Mm -hmm. who didn't go through that same experience. And it was almost looking at their collective grief. Um, The fact that they had been through it so many times, it was almost like this, here we go again. Right. Um, Because they had grieved so often and so much for so many people. Um, and I found that fascinating to just be like there was this entire untapped generation, really, um, that were just now starting to kind of peel back the layers of their experience.
0: Yeah, that is that is fascinating when you think about it, because I remember being at that Magic Johnson press conference in ninety two, one or two, whenever mm-hmm. everybody, everybody thinks like, all right, give him a couple years. That's it. My my neighbor up the street, he, he passed away from from AIDS. And you just think, OK, yeah, so. You're talking 2022 and magic's still with us. And you're just like, how in the hell did that happen? Everybody just assumes it was a death sentence. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so our fears of finances, how was that in your study? Because that's another just peel back onion. Like, is that is that something that when you guys look at it and do the research, obviously that's got to be a fear factor for people? Is theres there... Is there Aging?
1: I think so. I think that's definitely a place where people are paying a bit more attention. It keeps changing what we're looking at because, again, for our parents and grandparents' generations, pensions were the thing. Right. People would start working. They'd work with one company. They'd retire with that company and they'd get a pension. They'd get the watch and the pension. and, (laughs) And they were taken care of with that and Social Security and maybe the value they had in their house. They were good to go, but
0: retirement was to fifty five, and then it was sixty, and then a sixty five, yep. people at sixty five don't going up, right? People at sixty five though, they still got a lot but of here's work. But here is what's
1: fascinating: is the retirement age kept going up, but the average age of retirement actually kept going down. So, as recently as like a decade ago, the average age of retirement was in the early sixties because people were retiring early. So the social security tap in age is not the same as the age that we're actually seeing people retire. However, that is now I think starting to bottom out and come back up where people are getting probably going to get closer to their expected retirement age for social security. Wow. And this has a lot to do with the fact that pensions are kind of a thing of the past. Very few companies offer those anymore. Oh, yeah. Now you're saving for yourself in your 401k and it gives you a lot more control over what you're saving. Some people financially savvy or get good advice when they're young, start young and do a great job. They're going to be in excellent shape, even with the market's ups and downs mm-hmm. over time. They're going to be fine. It's the folks that get it all in their control and then don't start saving. And, you know, it's basic economics. If you start saving when you're 20, That money is going to grow a lot more than if you start saving when you're 50. Right. So even if, you know, you've got to put way more in if you start saving later in life. And so we kind of see the one thing we want to be able to tell these 18-year-olds now is, I know as soon as you get out of college, you've got some college debt, and you want to, you know, you you want your house, you want your car, you want your fancy this because you've been poor for all this time that you're putting yourself through school. (laughs) Now, but then we come back and say, but don't start saving instead. A 22-year-old doesn't want to hear that. Right. They want want to go get the car. They want to go get that with that first paycheck. And so it's very difficult. Same thing with exercise, right? It's really Mm -hmm. the same concept of just a problem for later. Um, But really, that's, I think, part of that education that has to come in with our youth. This is what you need to do now to protect yourself later. And
0: we're you, look- Do you find that a lot in gerontology, like you're trying to deal with the young so when they get to being older, it's less of a problem?
1: I think that is absolutely – a good gerontologist will think that through as part of their implications for whatever their research findings are. And some of us do want to work very closely with, say, public health officials and educators to be able to say, hey, here's what's coming down the road – here's where it's best to get in, on the ground floor with these kids. And that is everything. As a gerontologist, it's not just about telling kids to exercise and save money. It's also exposing them to older adults. It's saying, don't be scared of the person who might be moving slowly or has no hair or teeth or is coming at you. Like, if the more exposure that we get, the better off um, our older adults are going to be because those kids are going to grow up with a normalized concept of aging. They're right. not going to be afraid of it. And that helps them embrace it. That helps them feel more comfortable going into fields that serve older people um, if they grow up with it. Right. There's so, going to be
0: a huge need. Huge absolutely. need.
1: And, and if you look at like the 10 fastest growing uh, fields in the country right now, at least six of them are related to aging. I mean, it is it is no joke. This is where we need people. Right. And we definitely see, I think I mentioned earlier, with our students coming into the field, The ones coming in are the ones that have relationships with older adults already. They see a need because their grandparents are experiencing something or their aging parents are experiencing Mm -hmm. something. Um, Or they've been out in the field. We get a lot of returning students who have been out in the workplace and say, oh, I got it all wrong. I need to come back and study aging because that's going to give me the leg up in my field.
0: Six years later, they're like, aha.
1: So we get a handful of people mid-career. Who come back to do their master's degree in gerontology because they recognize this is the knowledge that I need to, to springboard into the next.
0: Right. Well, part I mean, some, sometimes you got to get out in the workforce and then you see it and realize, well, you know what? Exactly. There is more doors opening over here than on this side.
1: Yep. And so um, that's one of the things on our campus. We really encourage the gerontology minor. Um, it's really hard to get students to find us. Because they don't know what that word means. We've literally changed our name to aging studies because students were like, gerontology, is that the rocks? Is that the maps? Is that the lady doctors? Like they are really struggling to understand. We've heard this. So we're really trying to educate. Yes and no, but yes. When we do the career fairs outside or the incoming freshmen come by with their parents, parents always stop at our booth. Right. They're like they're aging. This is what you need to do, and they're trying to bring. And their kids like, no, no, I want to look at the child booth, and they want right. to go look at psych, or they want to go look at you know criminal justice, right? And they're there's guys who want no to part us. to
0: look at your booth, like oh, <laughs> how embarrassing. They are not attracted yeah. to
1: what we're what we're selling. Mom, um, get away from there. <laughs> right, but their parents are like, they'll be back, yeah, um, because they recognize that this is this is the way that we're moving in this direction. And our students who do the minor, whether they're pairing it with biology and trying to get to med school, mm-hmm. or they're doing psychology and want to do clinical work, they're going to have a leg up over the majors who are just doing biology or just doing psychology because those the graduate schools are going to realize, oh, you get it. Right. By virtue of that gerontology minor, you understand where this population is headed. Right.
0: Has... The ability to network on social media, uh, have you guys studied that in gerontology? field for like the seniors as they're getting older, how it's better for them to maybe like in dating to like continue on their relationships? So, like at when, if in the 1950s, if you were 68, 70 years old, you probably stopped dating or tried to find a partner. But now, no. That I mean that you're still looking. Is that something you guys have?
1: I think we've definitely seen that trend as a field, and it's more than one piece to that. Prior, like back 50 years ago, there was a stigma to dating after you were widowed. Right. Um, you just your wore children black. weren't for it. Right. Um, and it was mostly women, right? And people were just like, "That was it. You're now the widowed Mrs. So um, and So." And now I think that stigma has changed because we have, like I said, so many different types of families and relationships now. Um, also, the networking piece has changed. What I hear, and this is more anecdotal than evidence-based, but we hear about people kind of going back to a reunion and f- making Facebook friends or something and then starting up friendships or relationships that way. Right. Or finding somebody um, through their social connections that they might never have seen again had we not had social media, but because of social media, somebody's like, hey, didn't you know this person? And they connect them. And, you know, people meet their high school sweet, sweethearts again after 50, <laughs> 50 or 60 years, years uh, through yeah. social media. Yeah. When prior, without social media, they would have lost touch. Right.
0: I, I was doing research and I, I stumbled upon like a an app for seniors dating. So like their version of you name it. Yes. And I just thought like, this is so sweet. Like that you could sit there and, And find somebody in Laguna Niguel or in, you know, Brea where before if you just sat in your little retirement home and just didn't get out, like you still have 10, 15, 20 years possibly, you know, to be and make a companion with.
1: Right. And those apps are out there. Um, The research shows people can and do make new friends. They can and do make new romantic partners. Um, And it really depends on their desire to do so. Um, I think that's a big piece. We don't see a lot of success. And in fact, my dissertation dealt a little bit with this. Um, We don't see a lot of success in people making new connections if they don't desire to. So if it's their kids or their, you know, sibling saying, hey, why don't you go make a new friend or go start dating or go, and they're kind of pushed into it, that's not successful. But if the person says, you know what, I want to date or I want to find, you know, new companions. Right. And they go looking, the majority of them are successful and they do find those new relationships rewarding.
0: Do you guys, have you guys studied and see that if you do you keep a, keep a companion longer, that your I guess your health mental and physical is better than if you're recluse, shut in, you stay single or a widow and doesn't you know, date?
1: Yeah, or- I mean, at the very base of that is the social engagement piece. People who are socially engaged are doing better across the board. Um, Everything from living longer to being healthier to reporting better life satisfaction, um, social engagement in general. Okay. Um, If you want to look at relationship partner, like a romantic partner, then you kind of, yes, but you got to go deeper into the quality of that relationship because there are some people who are partnered by choice and getting something very positive out of that. And then there are others who... Fail to unpartner due to the potential stigma they would face, right. whether it be their religion or their culture or their kids or whatever. Um, and unhappy or miserable or unhealthy relationships do not give that same engagement boost, right. as you can imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't want to give you the David Letterman top 10, but what, like, <laughs> top three kind of advices would you have for anybody stepping into their 60s? Or 65 to like make it easier transition?
1: Yeah, I would say don't get in your own head. I think age is truly just a number. We hear that all the time. But when we put these sort of false numbers on things, same way of saying, oh, you're 18, you're an adult now. No, that's not how that works, right? right? Like you've got to age into that. You've got to have the maturity to to make decisions. But we put these numbers on things. And so right now we're sort of saying oh 65 is because it was that social security number all those years ago, we sort of say now you're an older adult. Well, it's just a number. How are you feeling? If you still feel like a younger or middle-aged adult, go for it. Don't you don't have to all of a sudden, you know, buy a rocking chair and retire from your job. That's not a requirement. So it's truly remembering age is just a number that's that would be a huge one um i can't stress enough the staying engaged okay and the staying engaged in the way you want to stay engaged um there is so much research out there about the importance of control in our lives um and that's true for your three-year-old as much as it's true for you know an aging parent or grandparent having as much control as possible, being able to make your own decisions. Um, And that can be about what you do to engage. So engaging socially does not have to look the same. Some people might feel connected in a book club where they have tangential relationships with five or six other people. Others may need a tight circle of close friends that they spill all their secrets to. It's what you need that's most important and at the end of the day you know people can encourage older adults to go off and do something but it has to be driven by themselves and you know there might be somebody who says i have been waiting to retire all my life so that i can be alone maybe that person's okay (laughs) if they are who's that person maybe the (laughs) I'm sure there are some out there.
0: I can't wait to just be done right, with right because earth. I've just
1: been dealing with people for so long. Maybe my job required me to constantly right. be on and constantly be, and now I just want my quiet time so that I can write yeah. or that I can read or that you know. And it's okay. Yeah, you know, if that person feels content and healthy doing that, God love them. Right? Yeah, that's that precisely. Right. So I think that uh, those are all pieces that I would say would be super critical, um, and really, just I mean, and this is so cliche, but you know we all have heard that phrase that nobody ever says. I wish I worked more on my tombstone. That it's, it's a, I guess it's a cliche for a reason. We need to put as much energy into our relationships as we do into our work. We need to cultivate those, uh, because unless work is going to be the thing we die doing. And there are some people who have that connection to their job and want that to be the case. But again, I think for the majority that want to have those strong relationships, they have to be cultivated along the way. Mm -hmm. We can't just magically hope that, you know, kids are going to forgive us for 40 years of absenteeism (laughs) the day we retire. And, you know, we sort of show up and... Hi, you remember me? Remember me? (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right so let's take about let's talk about the thing that that's affected everybody the last 2 years is covid how has that been just a real difficult thing for seniors to deal with
1: Yeah I would argue that they've been affected more than well I don't know, with the kids, I've seen it there too. Right. I would um, say those two those, those two
0: groups though. The beginning and the end have yes, dealt with it the
1: <laughs> Yes. The biggest and, blow. Absolutely. And at the beginning, I think there was the huge critical emergent health problem, right? Where the people who were dying were our older adults and people who had health problems. Um, and that was all you heard about at the very beginning. Right. Was when COVID would go grandma, a, and grandpa. Right, it would go through a nursing home, and you know, just huge right Washington of people. wasn't that the first yes. right? And you know, there was so much attention to you know we have to keep everybody separate and out, and you know, they, they were like on lockdown, and so all of a sudden, our older loved ones were basically imprisoned. Um, Whether they were in an institutional setting or if they were at home. Right. They were basically like, you were not leaving the house anymore. You were not doing that. And that, as any of us can imagine, huge mental effects, right? The emotional impact, the cognitive impact, the physical impact of not being able to just go walk around the block and be able to just go square dance on Tuesdays, whatever. whatever. Right. And to, to have everything shut down, I think our older adults absolutely bore the brunt of that early on. Um, and then thankfully That's we're tough. the first to get the vaccine. Um, and then I think we saw a bit of a shift in healthy older adults when the vaccine came out. And now you saw hope and the, those individuals being able to say, okay, maybe now it's safe to see my grandkids again. To, but I, I know that there were people who went, who are still two years without seeing their loved ones, without mm-hmm. getting a hug. from a kid or grandkid. I mean, that has got to be traumatizing.
0: Right. I mean, think about the last time I saw little Jimmy, he was two. Right. And I missed birthdays and Christmases and bar mitzvahs, whatever.
1: Yep. And so, you know, FaceTime can only do so much to kind of make you feel a little better. So I think that's a huge place. Um, And I think at a critical time for some people where they were really trying to define what retirement might look like. They wanted to define what maybe those who lost a spouse, what that is going to look like for them. They did it in this bubble that was not normal or natural. And so now hopefully we're coming out of this. Mm -hmm. They don't have that. Their new normal is not normal at all. They've redefined who they are in a context that is not lasting. Right. And so I feel like they're going to have some challenges separate to what the average American is going to face. Right,
0: I, I tried to do research and find how this affected seniors in 1917 pandemic, mm-hmm. right? The Spanish flip. Literally nothing. It was just kind of like a blanket thing. Is this something where the people in your field will now do a study on how this affected? Yep. Seniors Those like have
1: already started. Right,
0: you've just They've someone already just,
1: started. Yep.
0: Until whatever we've someone, all got pieces of right. that
1: working on. We're working on a survey right now, and there are questions in there about the impacts of COVID.
0: It's funny. Like a hundred years ago, not yep. a thing. Now it's like we're writing books. Yep. We got to get an idea of how this works. Yes, for the next one because there exactly. always will be a next one. People don't understand, but it's how exactly. you cope with it when it comes around the next time. Yep. So do. You, Let's say when this is March, April of 2020, does your mind start spinning going, "Who oh, should we start doing some research or should I start taking notes about how this is going to affect the field? Or are you not there? Is that other people? Or there how were, do you work in that there regard? There were
1: definitely folks that did that. Absolutely. Um, our department here on campus actually went in a different direction. And we immediately kind of we saw... Two things happening simultaneously. So March, April, right right as this was starting, we were thinking, okay, we've got an entire cohort of students who need to do their internships that have just been canceled, like their internships shut down. Um, so we do the psychology internship. We've got hundreds of students doing that every semester. Human Services on our campus has hundreds of students doing internships. The gerontology program has students doing internships. And every single one of them, we're told, don't come in anymore. But these students need these hours to get their degrees. Right. And so that was one thing that we saw happening. Simultaneously, we work with some of the places in our community who were saying our older adults who used to come to our senior center, who used to come to our place to get socialization, are stuck at home. And they don't know how to use social media. They don't know how to use FaceTime. They don't have these things yet. Um, And so we kind of put our heads together together. And uh, came up with, uh, under the leadership of uh, Karen Wong here on campus, and she kind of connected our program with these senior centers and providers in the community with these students who now have to do virtual internships and basically said, we're going to train college students on how to work with older adults virtually by phone to teach them how to get on FaceTime and call their grandkid or teach them how to join of poker club right. online or teach them how to join you know to to get some level of contact and interaction even if they can't leave their homes and it was such a success that we were st- we had to turn people away we didn't have enough <laughs> bandwidth to manage it and we're still doing it to this day in this semester we still have groups interested. We still have students interested and it's been an amazing, we call it an outreach program. Mm -hmm. So instead of collecting data, we kind of went in the opposite direction and we're like, how can we help? And brought in students in a very simple model, just kind of met needs of both the students and the older adults and kind of put them together for socialization. Wow. That's great. It was super fun.
0: In the gerontology field, do you guys study how religion in any like whether you're Catholic or Southern Baptist or Muslim, does that
1: come into play on how aging is Lots of studies about that I haven't personally done any of those um, but yeah there there's a lot out there on religion um, it comes into play in so many different ways in terms of you know there are religion and diet studies there are studies about end-of-life decision making as you can imagine right with religion there are grief studies done with religion um, widowhood studies yeah. yeah.
0: My Lord, this is such a deep field. So deep. Oh my God. My head. Exponentially. I'm glad we got this time because my head (laughs) hurt for the last two years doing all the (laughs) catch up research. And I'd email you like maybe now, not yet, (laughs) maybe now. And I'm studying and I'm thinking like I might be a senior by the time we get to this (laughs) podcast. That's what I was waiting for. I can't thank you enough for your time. I I can't thank you enough for what you do being in this field. Um, I've learned stuff doing my research on you to like maybe I can help with my mom with this or my aunt and uncle or anybody I know. It's, it's really sweet. I think we take seniors for granted, like on just who they are. And I think they've got a wealth of knowledge to give us.
1: Absolutely. And for
0: you to be in this field and actually work with them and try to make their lives better is like, just gives you a gold star, special place.
1: Thank you. I am, I, I found my, my place. And we always kind of joke, you don't just go into gerontology like you go into other fields. You don't do it for the money. Right. Um, not a lot of the fields are super high paying, but the reward is, is incredible. The people I get to work with on a daily basis are the best people that I have met. Um, and the students that come to us are truly amazing human beings who are doing this because they see a place where they can help.
0: I mean, just think you were maybe a drink or two away from serving to actually being a bartender. And it somehow it clicked that, you know what? I think serving old people drinks is just not, is something I don't want to do. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like the funniest thing. Like that's the moment. Yep. I think this works for me.
1: And you got to, and I, that would be my advice to, you know, any students listening out there you might have a moment that clicks just like that. It's okay if you don't, but if you do have it, listen to it because if it takes you in the direction of your passion, then you can go your whole career enjoying what you do.
0: Yeah. You're the best. Thank you so much for your time and for what you do.
1: Thank you so much. This was such a a pleasure. Thank
0: you. All right. Let's do it in two years. All right. All right. (laughs) Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Laura Zella Watson. Please click the like button. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe as well, Please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard. And remember, you can follow the podcast on Instagram. And you can also find all of our past shows on the website, justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.